into the theology pit. Theology pit. You're falling in the theology pit. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Theology Pit. This is Theology Out of Pittsburgh, and not to be confused with a bottomless pit, because you know what we say, when you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. I'm, of course, your friendly neighborhood theologian and host, Samson Kovach, and I'm welcoming you back to our, well, this is our, our sort of our series in the Bible, but this is like our bonus series that we're doing today, our, our bonus episode. Um, we've spent a lot of time studying about what the Bible is, reliability of it, um, you know, how we can prove to others that, you know, it's it's truly reliable as a work of man, but also divinely inspired as a work of God. And that, you know, because of that, it has an authority uh, for us and over us uh, within our lives, and and we can trust it. But then we got into the hermeneutical aspect of it, which is how do we interpret it? This is great that we have all this knowledge, okay? It's great that we can prove all of this stuff, and it's great that we can, you know, uh, appreciate uh, what God has done, you know, by giving us His Word, but. The, really, the you know the uh, homiletical question there is the big well. So what? I mean, okay, so what? All right, that's what we have. How do we extract from that and apply it to our lives? And that was you know the um, last couple episodes of the theology pit talking about the different um, hermeneutical. Um, uh, translations, the hermeneutical practices, the methods, uh, those sort of things. And, and, you know, how do we interpret the Bible? And I decided to finish up, you know, last week and then say, Hey, I'm going to do a bonus week where I'm going to put together a study for you. And I'm going to explain to you how I did it. And it's going to be based on the doctrine of justification, uh, the Protestant uh, understanding or the reformed understanding of justification and where that comes from. So if you're listening and you're Roman Catholic um, and, and you haven't listened to all of the uh, podcasts on soteriology that I did before on salvation, on justification, you can go back and listen through to all of those because I, I represent Roman Catholicism, I think, really well in it. Um, and you'd also get some Protestantism, but a lot of Protestants and Reformers um, kind of asked the question because I was very light on Scripture intentionally for that series because I wanted to get through this whole Bible series first. And now I'm going to try and spend the rest of this time going through um, the scriptural evidence I have for why I believe the doctrine of justification, what it is, the articulation of it, and the defense of it. And I'll tell you how I put this all together and then I'll go about explaining it and in you know a didactic way and well really what that means all right so whenever you're getting ready to do any kind of study whenever you're getting ready to well put together let's let's say that you're in a Bible study or you're in a, um, a study group or a Sunday school group or something like that and somebody asks you hey do you want to teach? next week or do you want to teach next month or something like that and do you want to teach on a topic if you say yes i would like to encourage you to do a lot of study between that time and the time you have uh in order to teach no a lot what i do is uh, whatever topic it is i first put myself in the place of somebody that has no idea about that topic. 
Okay. And I think to myself, what questions would they ask? I mean, what questions would I ask if I didn't know this? Or, you know, there was a time when I didn't know certain things. What questions was I asking? Um, You could find online somewhere. I mean, you'd have to do some searching of, um, you know, some of the interviews that I did on, on Word FM in, uh, oh, years ago. My goodness, probably eight years ago or more. And, you know, people would ask me when they were listening, you know, how did you have all those answers so fast? Like I, I did one on um, purgatory one time and somebody called in uh, the radio station and asked me on air, you know, where in scripture do you find evidence for the, the doctrine of purgatory, you know, Roman Catholic perspective. And I immediately started rattling off a bunch of different, you know, um, scripture addresses and even diving into some of the most, um, I guess, uh, you know, the ones that would explain the best to somebody who was not Roman Catholic, you know, what it was and where it was. And, and, you know, I, I would always get asked, well, you know, why should I believe this stuff? Cause they say, well, I want to know why I should believe it. And like, where is it in scripture? And I'm like, look, I'm a Protestant. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm reformed. I don't believe it either. You know, But here's the articulation of it and they're able to do it. And people listen to that and they said, you were immediately able to rattle off like, you know, six different like places, six different verses. How, how were you able to do that? And I said, because I anticipated that question. So, you know, your group, you know, your audience, you know, who you're doing this study for. That's the first thing over, uh, I mean, just uh, over prepare. All right. Be loaded for bear like you're squirrel hunting. I mean, just have so much available because some really great questions, some really great conversation and some, you know, really great moments can come out of that time where you're teaching in a, excuse me, and not really like a, um, a formal setting where it's just you lecturing. But if you can teach where there's a back and forth and people are talking with you, then it, I mean, you learn as much, if not more than they do, because they might ask something that, Oh, wow. You know, I've never really thought of that. That's a, that's a really good one. And we should look into that. Does anybody have that? Cause here's the thing. Somebody might ask a question that you might not know the answer to, but there might be somebody else in the room. That's like, you know, looked at that subject and been like, Oh, you know what? I did a study on this one time and it's, you know, this, and they can help you out with that if necessary, but generally try and cover all of your bases, try and know all the different positions. I mean, when I went in to do my study on soteriology, you know, um, on the doctrine of justification on salvation, I didn't do it out of, um, I don't, I don't want to say this pejoratively to, to shy anybody away from doing a study like that, but I didn't want to do it out of, um, ignorance and bigotry of my own denominational background. Okay. What I wanted to do is say, how does everybody look at this? And that's, that's kind of what, um, you know, God has like pushed me towards my entire Christian life is understanding the similarities and the differences of all these different denominations and finding the merit in them, even if they're wrong. And I, I do, I mean, I, I don't say that, you know, the Roman Catholic understanding of the atonement is correct. If I were to say that, the question would be, well, why aren't I a Roman Catholic? Because um, I've had Roman Catholics ask me that. They're like, you understand the Roman Catholic faith so well. You can articulate it better than most Roman Catholics. Why aren't you Roman Catholic? And it's really, that's that's the place that you want to get with anybody that you're talking with. You know, they can, you could talk on their level. You can explain what they understand and help them understand it better. And then you can say, but, you know, that's not my tradition. I don't, I don't believe that. 
and, and you know, they'll immediately be put back. Well, well, why not? And they're willing to listen. It's different than if you just go in and start, you know, hammering them on certain things. So on a subject, study on it, you know, I mean, just, just get to know it inside and out, like, you know, as, as much as you possibly can. I mean, you can't really exhaust, um, you know, the, the word of God and God's knowledge. There's, there's so much there. There might be some subjects that, you know, can just totally go into the realm of speculation. Like when you get to like angelology and demonology and stuff like that, you know, there's not a ton of stuff there. Um, you can get into like, you know, the historical understanding of angels and demons. That's different than, you know, the biblical, um, you know, study and articulation and understanding of, of angels and demons. But we're going to be looking at the doctrine of justification today. And if you've never studied this or you've never heard of this, um, you know, exactly what this is within the umbrella of salvation. Okay. There are three parts, past, present, and future. Uh, in, in a reformed understanding, I'm doing this completely from a reformed understanding. Okay. So the past aspect of it is called justification. The present aspect of it is called sanctification. The future aspect of it is called glorification. Whenever scripture, and especially the New Testament, is talking about salvation, um, depending on the translation that you have and the language that you're reading it in, most notably English here, you will come across the same word of saved or salvation used over and over again for all three of those aspects. And you have to look at it contextually, which is called the pericope, the unit of thought of exactly what are they talking about and which, which part of salvation? Are they talking about sanctification? Are they talking about glorification? Are they talking about justification? And if you don't do this, this is where I've noticed a lot of denominations get confused because they say, no, look, I am saved. This is what this means. And generally, Salvation, um, when you look at it as a whole, what it is, is, you know, you're justified, which means that you are declared righteous by God. You're made just by God. You're made right. You've been righteous. I mean, that's bad English, but you have been righteous. It's as though you did everything perfect and you've, you've never done anything wrong. Um, you're also forgiven of your sins. Okay. Those two things happen there. Sanctification is the process of being set apart and becoming more Christ-like. Glorification is um, you, you know, you no longer sin because you have been glorified. In other words, you've been resurrected. You have your resurrected body. There is no sin nature. Okay. You are uh, a complete new creature. And this is where when you're reading through it, some people can mix these up because there are some denominations that say, I can't sin. It's impossible for me to sin. It's like, well, what do you do then? Why make mistakes? Well, a sin, it means to miss the mark. So you're actually sinning. You just don't want to admit it. And they say, well, no, scripture says I don't sin anymore. I can't sin. If I do sin, I'm, I'm no longer saved. You know, I mean, they just, because they don't break this, this up into these three parts. Now, I'm not going to be talking about sanctification or glorification, Okay, I want to put that out of there. So, sanctification is what we do, okay, with God's help, okay, the help of the Holy Spirit, okay, Th that is called um, a synergistic understanding, okay, that um, the, the word means to work together, okay, so it's God and us working together, we are working out our salvation, okay, glorification as far as I know, it seems to be monogistic, very much on God's part. I don't think we're resurrecting ourselves, okay? 
All right. And justification is very much monogistic on God's part. Sanctification, even though it's with us and God, we have that guarantee that the work that he's begun in us, he will complete. So even though we might be messing up, God's not messing up and he knows that we're going to mess up and he's going to be helping us there. All right. But take those two understandings out. Okay. If you remove them from the equation with what we're talking about today, you can better understand the doctrine of justification. Because the doctrine of justification, the, the definition is this. It simply says, it simply tells us what God says about us. I'll say that again. The doctrine of justification simply tells us what God says about us. That's all. If you take it any further than that, you will move into the realm of sanctification or, or into in glorification. But generally, people don't go there. They usually go into the sanctification realm. They usually pull it out of there, okay? So, if it goes beyond, if it goes beyond God saying something about us, we are outside the definition of justification, I want to try and make that as clear as I possibly can. So when we're doing this study, you're not getting confused in there. Now, I know you're asking about the, in in your head, well, what about faith? I mean, aren't we saved by faith? Isn't that, and we're going to get to that. I mean, I have a lot of notes here written out, but the concept of faith has been historically understood within the church, especially with the reformers. All right. And when I say reformers, I don't mean Protestants afterwards, after the reformers. I mean, like, like um, you know, Luther and like those reformers, loosely with like you know Calvin and uh, you know maybe maybe Zwingli, but not as much. I don't think. Okay, but here here's some Latin for you. All right, we have two different understandings of faith, and I've gone over this before. You, this if if you went through the salvation series, you, you're going to hear all these this stuff again. Fides qua creditor. Okay, this is faith by which we believe. It's different from fides quae creditor, which is the faith which we believe, or to say it differently, the faith which we confess. Okay, the faith which we have. All right, so the fides qua creditor is the faith by which we believe. It's a faith that has been given to us. The faith that we exercise is the second part. It's the same faith. It's just the subject-object distinction of where it's coming from, okay? Now, the faith by which we believe, the faith which we are receiving, the faith which we are getting, it is this faith that we're going to be focusing on. The second faith, okay, the faith that, you know, by which we confess, all right, the faith that we confess by. All right, not the faith that we are 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 getting. It's it's sort of like think of it like a, I guess like a ping pong game or something. You know, the first faith has been served over to us. It was completely outside of us. Okay, that faith, and then and then we return the ping pong ball. We bounce it back. That is the faith. That is our faith. It's the same ping pong ball. Ping pong ball is, is, I guess ping pong ball is faith here, all right? And it's it's the same thing. So it's been, it's come over to us, not by anything that we have done. It has been given to us, okay? We then respond 
by returning it. And when we return that, that is the faith which we believe. So the faith by which we believe is the ping pong ball being served to us. The faith that we exercise is us returning that serve. Okay. So it's been set in motion by the first person. So this faith, you know, by which we even have the ability to have faith in the first place that is given to us, that has been served to us. This is the faith that we're going to talk about. Whenever you hear the word faith within these scriptures, when we're studying over this, in in justification, this is the faith that, that is being talked about. Because a lot of people read through this, and just like with salvation, you know, every time they see the word saved, they do an illegitimate totality transfer. And we talked about that the other week, where they take the entire meaning of every possible meaning that it can have, and, we, and, and it gets stuffed into that one word, okay, as though it means all of it. But no, it depends on, you know, the circumstance on which one that it means. And so the same is with faith. A lot of times we read faith and we immediately assume that there's only one type of faith and it's the faith that I have. And a lot of times we go into the blind faith category. I just have to believe. I just have, regardless of evidence, I'm not really sure about it. I just have to know. I just have to believe and I confess and that's it. And no matter what, I will just keep saying this over and over and over again. Okay. That's not faith. Number one, that's not biblical faith. Okay. Biblical faith is you know, faith and evidence. We went over that with the notitia, census and fiducia and that's you know, back in um, uh, the sociology thing. But this faith that we're talking about is just this, the faith that is coming from God. Okay. Think about it. It's think about it like this. When we talk about this faith, the ping pong ball has been hit, but it has not yet crossed the net. It's not in our territory yet. Okay. So doctrine of justification simply tells us what God says about us. And the faith that we are talking about is the fides qua creditor, the faith by which we believe. Okay. The ping pong ball has not yet crossed the net. It is this faith that is being discussed. So whenever we go into doing a study, all right, we don't just want to proof text things. Okay. I'm not going through and saying, hey, I need to know everywhere where this particular concept is being held and being taught, okay? A lot of these notes have come from me over the years rereading my Bible over and over again and studying and things just kind of sticking in my head and me making notes and teaching on the subject over and over. So, you know, I have a a, a good grasp of, you know, not only where these verses are, but the books that they're in and, you know, the letters that they're in and, you know, the, the kind of the concepts around them, you know, so I've, I've internalized it and externalized it in, in that way. Okay. There are some study guides that you can go get if you, if you, you know, if you're starting out, like there's nobody else in the Bible study that, you know, can, can do this sort of stuff. It's great. Get the study guide, you know, use that as an outline, but still do your own research. Okay. There's nothing wrong with that. All right. You don't have to know your Bible perfectly. And enable to be, you know, to to enable you to teach the gospel. All right, that's that's not it. If you understand that the gospel is, you know, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, if you understand what that means, um, then you know you are more than qualified to tell people about it. And actually, you're obligated to tell people about it. You're, you know, we are we're called to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. So, justification. Whenever I'm going over this, I was looking 
through the big books that really talk about this. And this is like this, the central point of the gospel. This is the central message of the gospel itself. And this is where, you know, Paul really, really shines in a lot of his writings. Okay. He really pulls us out. So we're going to spend a lot of time in Galatians, Romans, Ephesians, and Philippians. All right. Those are going to be our big go-to books for this doctrine because Paul is explaining this and, you know, he even says in these letters with this understanding of justification, he was not taught this by anyone. Okay. He, this is something that he received from God through, because of his background, because of his study, because of his knowledge of scripture of the Jewish people, of tradition, of, of, you know, what God was doing through history and what it meant in the fulfillment of Christ. He was able to put this together and the Holy Spirit led him, you know, bringing, bringing back and bringing to recall. A lot of times when I teach, I, I can feel God with me in that I'm able to recall a lot of things I normally wouldn't think that I could do. I mean, some people may argue that. Some people say, well, you do know a lot. And it might be just through repetition that, you know, on these subjects that I do, but I'm always surprised at, you know, what comes to me, what comes to my head whenever I'm I'm teaching and people ask about a particular topic. And it might be something out in the left field, but it has, you know, it, it has importance to what the subject is. And I completely credit that to, to God's working through me. I've allowed myself to have um, a certain level of study and understanding so that, you know, as the Holy Spirit is working through me while I'm teaching, I am then able to be that, uh, that catalyst for him in order to uh, bring his word and edify people and, uh, you know, help uh, in explaining things in a didactic way, in a, in a teaching way. Okay. So um, let's start off here looking at, um, at the book of Galatians. Okay. And I have it marked down in, in different ways. Uh, but, um, I'm going to discuss what I mean by we are saved. And, and, and this is, I, I, I guess that this would be the, um, sort of the mission statement of this. This would be the outline. This is what I want you to take away from this ultimately. And that's this, that we are saved by the grace of God for Christ's sake through his faithfulness. Okay. We are saved by God's grace for Christ's sake through his faithfulness. Now, that might be different than the way that you've heard it before, that we are, you know, saved by grace through faith. Um, so, I've changed that a little bit because that's the point that I'm trying to make, that we are saved by God's grace, okay? And and I hold, you know, to that sola, like of the five solas, you know, uh, sola gratia, faith alone, or by grace alone, okay? Sola Christus, Christ alone, Okay, and it is not only for his sake, which means his merit, which means what he did, his works, it's all based on him. And it's through his faithfulness, the faithfulness of Christ, which is also the faithfulness of God and the faith of God. Ping pong ball on God's side, not on ours. Okay, so ultimately, if this is how we're saved, then when I unpack this 
through scripture, you should be able to start to see that revealing itself more and more. Okay. So remember the doctrine, the definition of justification and what this means. Now, people might ask, and they, and they do a lot, where do you see this whole understanding of, you know, we are saved by Christ's faithfulness? Because when I look at my Bible, I see that we are saved through faith in Christ, okay, not by his faithfulness. And that's a really good question. Depending on the translation that you use, could be how it's translated. I'm using the Net Bible, the New English Translation. You can find it at Bible.org. Um, I found it to be a really, really good translation. Um, it's an evangelical translation, uh, 64,000 footnotes in it, a lot of textual critic notes and some side notes in there. The Old Testament is the translation of the Greek Septuagint and not um, not from the Hebrew, uh, but the Hebrew is referenced very, very heavily. Okay, so it's, you know, sort of like uh, cross-understood, I guess. So let's just look at the... Um, scripture that I'm talking about here. It's in Galatians chapter two, verse 16. And it says, um, yet we know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And that we have come to believe in Christ so that we may be justified by the faithfulness of Christ and not by the works of the law, because the works of the law, no one will be justified. All right, so why does my translation say this, but other translations say faith in Christ? Because when you word it as faith in Christ, doesn't that sound like, you know, the ping pong ball is now on our side? It was hit over to us. What do you do with it? Do you return it or do you let it fall by? Everybody has the same opportunity. Depending on your theological bent is how you would interpret that. I mean, if you are... Somebody that is, you know, perhaps from an Armenian background, okay? You hear me say that and you're like, no, 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 no. That's exactly what it is, is the ping pong ball is served to everyone, okay? And it's very easy to return. It's super easy to return. Your, your paddle is basically a brick wall at the end of the table. It's going to happen, okay? You're going to return it. You're going to let it, it's, it's not going to go by. There might be like a, a small little space where it, it does, but, you know, it mostly isn't a possibility. Or you might say, oh, the brick wall is behind you, so it's not going to go flying off into nowhere and you can, you know, retrieve it at any time you want. But most people are going to say, no, it's, it's up to you to return that ping pong ball. Okay. And once you return that ping pong ball, then you are justified by your faith in Christ because you believed. But that brings in the question of, well, by what level did you believe, you know, and what if you don't believe that strongly anymore? Are you sort of saved? Are you not really saved? You know, what's going on? I mean, it, that gets into a whole different mess, but go through the uh, salvation series and, you know, we can unpack that more. But what I want to focus on is why did the authors or the translators of the net Bible decide to translate it as the faithfulness of Christ. Okay. And I think that there's a, a couple different reasons, but let's first talk about the wording itself. And this is going to get into some like geeky, you know, Greek stuff here, but I'm just going to, I'm just going to kind of, you know, sum it up a little bit so that we can understand, um, without, without getting too super technical on it. Um, this can also, the faithfulness of Christ can also be translated as faith in Christ. Okay. And it says a decision is difficult here, though traditionally translated faith in Jesus Christ. 
An increasing number of New Testament scholars are arguing that pistis Christau and similar phrases in Paul, okay, and we're going to look at some of those other phrases um, later on, involve a subjective genitive and mean that and mean Christ's faith or Christ's faithfulness. Okay. Now, noteworthy among the arguments for the subjective genitive view, where pistis is, um, takes a personal genitive, is almost never an objective genitive. And I know you're glazing over right now. I know you're sitting there going, uh. okay. On the other hand, I just want to let you know that there are people that do a very prominent um, view that... Uh, out there uh, for faith in Christ, okay? I think that after this study, when you kind of go back and you look back at it, you're going to say within the theology of understanding justification in this way, not only does it allow you to lean more towards the interpretation of faithfulness in Christ, it gives more weight that direction, but it also then allows the grammar to bend in that direction. Because if you're thinking about Paul's pericopes, his units of thought, what he's trying to convey overall, that fits better than, you know, what, what else, what, with uh, faith in Christ rather than the faithfulness of Christ. They have a side note here that says the phrase translated faithfulness of Christ, um, which notes that the grammar is not decisive. Nevertheless, that the faith faithfulness of Christ is not a denial of faith in Christ as a Pauline concept for the ideas expressed in many of the same contexts, only with the verb um, pastuo rather than the noun but implies that the object of faith is a worthy object, for he himself is faithful. Though Paul elsewhere teaches justification by faith, this presupposes that the object of our faith is reliable and worthy of such faith. Again, the difference between justification and sanctification. Everyone, thanks for listening to the Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. All right, so let's take a closer look here at um, Galatians 2.16 and 20. 2.16 uh, reads like this. Um, Yet we know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by the faithfulness of Christ and not by the works of the law, because the works of the law, no one will be justified. All right. That was 16 verse 20. Let me jump down here. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So the life I now live in the body, I live because of the faithfulness of the Son of God, who loved me and gave me for and gave himself for me. Okay. Let's hop over to just really quickly Romans um, 3:22 and 26. 322 says, namely, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness 
of Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. Verse uh, Chapter 3, verse 26 now. This was also demonstrated his righteousness in the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who lives because of Jesus' faithfulness. All right, we'll hop over to Ephesians uh, chapter 3, verse 12, and it reads, In whom we have boldness and confident access to God because of Christ's faithfulness. All right, Ephesians, or Philippians, rather, uh, chapter 3, verse 9 says, uh, let me find it here. Here it is. Um, And be found in him, not because I have my own righteousness derived from the law, but because I have the righteousness that comes by the way of Christ's faithfulness, a righteousness from God that is, in fact, based on Christ's faithfulness. Again, you can hear how this is said over and over again. Now, I'm just, you know, taking this and, um, you know, throwing these verses out at you. Okay. This is what's called proof texting. I'm showing how through Paul's letters, he is using similar phrasing and similar wording in order for you to, um, get an understanding that this is a constant theme that Paul is, is, is doing. And if you look at, um, Philippians, you know, uh, uh, chapter three, verse one, you can see that this is a common theme that he does over and over and over again, even outside of what we have in the new Testament, because, uh, chapter three, verse one says, finally, my brothers and sisters rejoice in the Lord to write this again is no trouble to me at all. And it is a safeguard for you. Did you catch that to write this again? Okay. We only have one letter to the Philippians, but he's saying to write this again. What's he writing again? Well, what you know we we're we're talking about here with the fact that you know Christ has done it all okay he even even you know says that look I, there are people that are going to say that it's by works and listen i did all of those things i was the greatest my you know work is is, is scubalon it's sometimes referred to as dung or rubbish but it actually means like you know like doo doo um you know it's a it's a vulgar term for fecal matter that's used for shock value um, that's what uh, Scubalon is. And so he is writing this and he's doing this over and over and over again. Now, depending on the chronological understanding or history of, you know, the chronological history of the um, the New Testament and the way that you look at this, some people have said that, you know, he wrote um, Galatians first, okay? And then from Galatians... Uh, you know, Galatians was first, then he went into the, the books to the Corinthians. Okay. Um, but there were also like, you know, the Thessalonian books, but in what we're talking about. So these con, so this concept here is something that he has done over and over again. And he even says that, you know, I have not received this from man. Let's go to, um, first Corinthians 12 or one 12. <laughs> what am I saying? First Corinthians one no. Galatians chapter one, verse 12. Um, it stated, for I did not receive it or learn it from any human source and said, I received it by a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, 
even that wording, some people have said it, it could be translated as he received it a, a revelation about Jesus Christ or of Jesus Christ, but it still works in the same way. He's not saying that, you know, this has come from the apostles that were with Christ, okay, even though you know he's considered an apostle but he is was not one of the of the 12 that walked with Christ um he even calls himself illegitimate uh he was you know born outside of it but um he is saying uh, by him saying this honestly is saying that those who at this time are that you might consider in apostolic authority okay um I didn't receive it from them I received this about Christ you know from God. And he backs it up with the Old Testament. He backs it up you know, with his writing, with his, his articulation. Um, and even Paul agrees, or Peter agrees with it, because Peter says in, in, in his writing, some of the stuff that Paul says is very difficult to grasp and understand, but it is scripture. It is it is God's word. We we recognize that, okay. Even though, you know, technically it would be well if there was a an unwritten magisterial authority, Peter would definitely have it. But yet, Paul would be considered under him at this time period. You know, I mean, anybody would do anybody would do that. I mean, if Peter is the Pope, you know, from a Roman Catholic perspective, Peter is the Pope. Paul would definitely be underneath him. Paul is not the Pope. Okay, he is not the one that Christ put in charge, but yet Peter is acknowledging and submitting to Paul's writings. And Paul in Galatians even rebukes Peter and you know and, and puts him in his place. And we'll get to that a, a little bit later. But um, the point that I was making is that with this type of you know apostolic succession uh, type thing that's going on and 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 authority, you know you. This is not where Paul is going with this because some people wanted him to, you know. I mean, there were even those arguments in uh, in First Corinthians uh, chapter twelve or chapter one, verse twelve. Why do I keep saying First Corinthians twelve? Maybe there's something there that I, I should get to, but it says um, uh, he's he's arguing with people and they and he says. Um, uh, now I mean this, that each of you is saying, uh, I am with Paul, or I am with Apollos, or I am with uh, Cephas, that's also uh, uh, Peter, or I am with Christ. Is Christ divided? Paul wasn't crucified for you, was he? Or were you, in fact, baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I did not baptize any of you except for uh, Crispus and Ga Gaius, so that uh, no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Um you know, he said, uh, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with clever speech so that the cross of Christ would not uh, become useless. So he is saying that they're even trying to get like denominational at that point, you know, with the different apostles. And Paul's saying, no, there is no. Okay. Did he say, don't follow Peter or don't follow Apollos or don't follow me? No. He said, Put your faith in Christ. Christ is the central point of the gospel here. You are, you're not saved because of who you follow, okay? So just because you think you're a Roman Catholic and that means that you're saved, or you think you're a Baptist and that means you're saved, or you think that you're non-denominational, therefore you're saved, or uh, Presbyterian, or Methodist, or, Methodist, or, Methodist, or, anything, or anything, anything that, that means you're saved, it doesn't. It, this has nothing to do, justification has nothing to do with this, okay? I've made the argument before that proper doctrine is not necessary for salvation, but it is necessary for the health of the church. So I'm not saying ignore 
remember all those doctrines or all those doctrines are equal or, you know, Roman Catholicism and baptism and, you know, Presbyterianism and Lutheranism, that all of those theologies are all equal. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that when it comes to the doctrine of justification, that doesn't matter. That's, this is before, this predates any of this stuff. Okay, this predates any sanctification type aspect, any uh, setting apart type aspect of it. Okay, has nothing to do with it. So let's go to Ephesians now before we before we run out of time. I'm gabbing too much here. All right, so um, Ephesians chapter one. This is so interesting because when you're reading through Ephesians, it is all about Christ in chapter one. Okay, so in chapter one. Um, I mean, I don't have time to read through all of this, but you know, please do. Please read through all of one and um, and recognize that it is all about Jesus, and that um, Ephesians chapter two is all about um, us through His faithfulness. Okay, and that's I mean that is really really awesome. Whenever um, you're looking at this. Um, this is something from Ephesians chapter two, verse five, that I want you to take away from this. And it says, even though we were dead past tense in transgressions, um, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you are saved past tense verse eight for by grace, you are saved through faith. And it is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. All right, so understand that. Remember what, I mean, just understand what we've been talking about, okay? When it says that, you know, that it is not from yourselves. What What is not from ourselves? This faith, okay, that we are saved by grace. Okay, for grace, we are saved through faith. And it's not this. You can almost insert the word faith. It is not by this faith that, you know, from yourselves. It's the gift of God, okay? And God gives us many gifts, and it's not the gift that saves us. But listen to this. Okay, we are saved through faith. So if it's not ours, whose is it? It's Christ's. It's God's faith. The ping pong ball is still on their side of the table. We are saved by their faith, not by ours. But what the interesting thing here is, is that this word that is being used for uh, for saved here, or this, this concept, by grace you have been saved, that's what in Greek is called the perfect tense in Greek. And it connotes both the completed action, you have been saved, and the continuing results, you will be saved. And that's something that we miss in the English, that when this is says that, you know, by grace you have been saved, it is saying you are saved past tense, it has already happened, and this is future tense. It is going to happen. That's from verse five. Okay. Even though you were dead in transgressions, you're dead in transgressions. You can't do anything. There's nothing that you can do. You made, you were made alive together with Christ by grace. You are saved. And this is that, that aspect of it. It has been done and it is continuing and it is an ongoing process also on top of it. Okay. So this salvation aspect is, you know, a really powerful one when it's kept outside of us because there's nothing that you can do to retain it and there's nothing that you can do to lose it because it was not yours to give or to accept in the first place. It is something that has been applied to you. God declared you righteous. He said it. He declared it. He said you are righteous and what God says goes. He says, let there be light light comes into existence. The universe leaps into existence. He says that you're righteous. Guess what? You are. There's no going back against that. Okay. Galatians um, chapter three, 
verse uh, verses one through fourteen. Starting to get nervous. I'm not going to have enough time here. I'll just I'll just let it go over if it does. Um, all right, chapter 3, 1 through 14. You foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell on you? Before your eyes, Jesus Christ was vividly portrayed as crucified. The only thing I want to learn from you is this. Did you receive the Spirit by doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Now, both of these are rhetorical questions because both of them are, are neither. Okay? I mean, Paul has spent a lot of time making the argument that we are justified by the faithfulness of Christ. Okay, and you can't then skip over to this and say, "Oh, well, I was justified by me, by by what, by my believing." No, because right beforehand, I mean, it would be it would be a schism in thought for Paul to be making that argument. He just got done beating this into them that you are justified by the faithfulness of Christ. It is by His faithfulness. Everything is by Christ. It is by Christ. It is by Christ. So let me ask you this question: um, You know, were you justified by the works of the law or by some other thing you did by faith? Well, neither, neither you were. And he says, and then he goes on to say, you know, or by believing uh, what you've heard, verse three, are you so foolish that you would think that it was one of these two things? In other words, although you begin with the spirit, you are now trying to finish by human effort. You, you think that your behavior, you think that you, you know, maintaining this type of faith as though you have to make a new set of laws, because that's kind of what they were doing in, in Galatians right now. It's what he's getting on them about. They removed the law, uh, you know, they, they weren't exactly antinomians, which means that they were law deniers and law breakers to allow grace to abound in a way. But they were saying, look, um, the Jews had the Jewish law. Okay, of God, the Christians now have the Christian law of Christ. Okay, two, it's the exact same thing. All right, you, you have two sets of rules here. Well, we're Christians, so we follow these set of rules. They were Jews, they followed those set of rules. And the arguments were being over, well, do the Christians also have to follow the Jewish set of rules and the Christian set of rules? And he's like, no, it's, 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 it's neither. Like, you know, Christ cannot be crucified for you again. He, he says that uh, elsewhere in, in Galatians. He can, how can, you know, he did that to fulfill this law. Now you're coming up with another law. Okay, great. Now there's this Christian law. So Christ has to come back and be crucified again for your law. No, that's not how it works. You cannot finish by human effort. All right. We strive to be more and more faithful, to grow closer to God because we love him and because we want to, not because we have to. Okay. It's not an obligatory thing. All right. We have the freedom in Christ. All things are lawful for us now, even though all things may not be profitable. Okay. And this is the thing. If you, if you strive to do good, my question to people always is, yes, you are free free to do like all these other things, but you know, why do you want to? That becomes the question. Why do you want to? If you want to, what does that tell me about uh, your salvation? Okay, what does that tell me about your walk with God? I can't say whether or not somebody's justified. I can't. I can't. I can't. I don't know people's hearts. But what I do know is why is it that everybody else I know that's justified in Christ does not want to sin? but yet you do. Why is that? Okay. I'm not saying that you're not saved. I'm not saying that you're not justified. I'm not saying that you weren't declared righteous. What I'm asking though is why is your walk so questionable in that way? 
do you not understand this? Is this something that you struggle with? Because if it is, that's totally a legitimate question. You totally can be honest with God and with God's people. I mean, well, hopefully you can, because a lot of a lot of Christians are very judgmental with that. That if you're not giving the the facade or the veneer of perfection, well, then they you know question your salvation. So you then have to lie and pretend to be something that you're not in order to be accepted and to be seen by other people as though you're justified when you're actually suffering and struggling inside. And that's why with me, you look, what you, what you see is what you get. I am no different in church than I am at work than I am at home. I mean, this is who I am warts and all, you know, what you're getting here on, on the theology pit with, with my struggles and, you know, everything else that I'm doing. But you know, we have to be open and honest about that. So going on, um, Paul saying here, have you suffered so many things for nothing? If indeed it was for nothing, does God then give you the spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law or by your believing, uh, or by you believing what you heard again, rhetorical. It's not you. It's not like, Oh, I'm a Gnostic. I got secret knowledge. Therefore I can perform this miracle. No, it's not that at all. You were able to perform miracles. Things were done in your presence, whether you had a very high intellectual understanding or a low intellectual understanding. That is not what's making the difference, okay? Verse uh, 6. Uh, Galatians chapter three, verse six, just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So then understand that those who believe are sons of Abraham and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, proclaim the gospel to Abraham ahead of time saying all nations will be blessed in you. And and we're going to come back to this thing here. Okay. That Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness because I know a lot of you are saying, ha, doesn't that destroy this argument? Again, that would be a schism in thought with what Paul is doing in Galatians here. And he does the same thing in Ephesians. He does the same thing in Philippians and he does the same thing in Romans. This is a constant theme that he has. So the schism in thought wouldn't be with me or with Paul, but it would be with people trying to read their own doctrine in here. Because when we just take this at face value and we understand that this is under sanctification or under justification and not under sanctification, we can, we will get a better understanding, but we are going to look at the Abraham uh, account in in Romans and and what's going on there. We're actually going to be moving to that right after I finish um, right after I finish up this part. So um, let's go on to verse nine. Uh, Galatians chapter three, verse nine. So then those who believe and are blessed along with Abraham, the believer for all who rely on doing the works of the law are under a curse because it is written cursed is everyone who does not keep on doing everything written in the book of the law. Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous one will live by faith. Okay. And that righteous will live by faith is taken from Habakkuk chapter two, verse four. But the law is not based on faith, but the one who does the works of the law will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, because it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles so that we could receive the promise of the spirit by faith. And again, it's the faithfulness of Christ. It's the work of Christ. It is the righteousness of Christ. Everything is based on Christ. 
as Christians, we are Christocentric in our understanding. And once you stop being Christocentric and you become, I guess, anthrocentric, man-centered, then this is where um, a lot of your problems you know, come in the, in the place. Um, in Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 17, uh, Paul hits on this exact topic again because he quotes the exact same scripture again. It says, For the righteousness of God is revealed uh, in the gospel from faith to faith, just as it is written that the righteous by faith will live. He is again... Uh, hitting on that um, Habakkuk uh, comment, talking about Christ. And all of Romans 1 is about how no one is righteous. Nobody, nothing, no one. There To say that, you know, he's making this whole argument that, you know, there is nobody that searches for truth. Christ is the only one who is righteous, the only one who is perfect. There is nobody else. For the, him then to switch gears and say, oh, well, except for Abraham, you know, that would be a schism in thought. It would destroy the argument that he's trying to make, but he's not going that direction because he's understanding that, you know, this whole thing with Abraham. Okay, let's let's go to Romans chapter three here. That's, that's where we're headed. Um, this whole thing with Abraham is dealing with um, the righteousness that God has pronounced on him. Okay, and not uh, anything that he did in reaction. And even when you go back and you read that story and you read the covenant, God is the only one who is on the uh, on the hook, so to speak, with that covenant. Okay, and that actually, you know, because he is the one as you know that uh, that goes through the, the between the the animals that have been split, making that contract that was a contractual agreement uh, with people at, at that time that they would have understood. But it's only one sided because only God goes through it. Abram does not go through it. It's not his responsibility. Okay. God is the one who is going to do right. God is the one who's going to fix this. And that actually springs back to the Proto-Evangelium of um, Genesis chapter 3, I believe it is, when um, he says that, you know, I will make things right. I will put things into place. He does it. And in the book of Genesis, it's, you know, continuing that theme. Paul's picking up that theme saying, look, in, in Christ, it has been fulfilled because of Christ's righteousness, because of uh, what has um you know, what has been done. So when we look at Romans um, chapter three and we go to verse 20, it says, for no one is declared righteous before him by the works of the law. Um, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law of righteousness of God, this is verse 21, the righteousness of God is attested to by the law and the prophets has been disclosed. Okay. Then it's going to go on. And this is where the faith of, of Christ is uh, for our justification here, okay? Namely, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe, there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but they are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God publicly displayed him at his death as the mercy seat acceptable through faith. And this is the propitiation. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because God, in his forbearance, had passed over the sins previously committed. This was also demonstrating his righteousness in the present time so that he would be the just, he would be just and the justifier of the one who lives because of Jesus's faithfulness. Where then is the boasting? Is it not? Is it excluded by what principle of works? 
No, but by the principle of faith. For we consider that a person is declared righteous by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Okay, or is he not uh, the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, the Gentiles too. Okay, which means that, you know, don't set up a, a separate level there of, um, you know, a separate set of laws. Um, do we then nullify the law through faith? Absolutely not. Instead, we uphold the law. Okay. Um, Romans chapter four then goes on to illustrate justification. And I know this is going to run over. This is going to be a longer theology pit today, but I want to get this understanding in here. Okay. Um, 416 is something that I, I'm going to hit and I'm going to talk on, um, you know, for this, this aspect of, um, uh, security here, but, uh, hang on a second. All right. So let's take a close look at, um, Romans four here and we'll start with, with, you know, uh, we'll start with verse one. What shall, um, what then shall we say that Abraham, our ancestor, according to the flesh has discovered regarding this matter? For if Abraham was declared righteous by the works of the law, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his pay is not credited due to grace, but due to obligation. Okay, so he's already hitting on this aspect of, of somebody thinking and saying, yes, Abraham believed that was his, the work that he did. That was something that Abraham did. And then God made him righteous. Paul's immediately trying to stomp that out right here in the next verse. Okay, no, listen, the one who works, his pay is not credited to him by grace. Okay, uh, it says, but due to, it's due to obligation. So in this sense, if you're thinking that by Abraham's belief, God is then obligated to make him righteous. In other words, Abraham is meriting God's favor. He is doing something that is causing God to react in a certain way. Abraham is the one in control of his own salvation. Paul's stomping that out right now. He says in verse five, um, but to the one who does not work, but believes, and this is what he believes, okay? He and Because and, some people stop right there. They say, well, it's not from the one who worked, but from the one who believes. No, no, it's what does he believe? He believes in the one who declares the ungodly righteous. It's not that you are righteous, but you are believing who? You are believing in the one, the one who's given you this ability to have faith. That's the one that declares the ungodly righteous. You are not godly in any way. You are not made right. You are not made neutral. You are not put in any ways. According to Paul, all through the beginning of Romans, this is something you are dead in your sins. You are dead in your trespasses. There's nothing that you can do. And it's all by Christ. Even back in the time of Abraham here, he is saying that Abraham believed on the one who declares forensically. Okay. He speaks it. He says, you are righteous. You are righteous. Abraham believed in the one who declares the ungodly to be righteous. He does not declare those who are put neutral to be righteous, those who have had any type of sanative grace put in them that balances the scales, those who have the ability to choose God or to reject God. 
because he's just made the argument that nobody chooses. Nobody goes that direction. Nobody does that. Okay. Nobody has that ability. All right. He declares, he believes on the one who declares the ungodly righteous. His faith is credited as righteousness. Whose faith? It's God's faith. Remember, it is God's faith in all of this. Okay. This is where the sanctification process starts for us and the justification part ends for God. God declares us to be righteous. And that's what, it, and that's what we are. He, we are righteous at that point. Then he goes on to talk about David for the forgiveness of sins also that that comes with it. Um, So we'll skip over that. Verse 9, is this blessed then, uh, is the blessedness then for the circumcision or also for the uncircumcision? Because we're talking about the Jewish people here. And Paul's writing to the church in Rome, which has Gentiles as well as, as Jews in it. He says, for we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was accredited to him? Was he circumcised at that time or not? No, he wasn't circumcised, but he was uncircumcised. Okay? And he had not received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Okay? So it's not that something happened to him and then he had to go and do something, anything, in order to accept that, in order for that to be a part of him, in order for him to retain that. He did not have to grasp that in any way. He did not have to accept that in any way. He did not have to have an outward showing of inward faith in order for that to be sealed, in order for that to happen. That's the point that Paul's making here. Okay, it's not when he was circumcised. He was, he was, he was righteous before he did anything because God, while Abraham was ungodly, declared him to be righteous. Before he did anything, before he had the opportunity to do anything, he was already declared righteous. The fact that you a child cries out for its parent only after it's been born, not before. This is the the, the point that Paul's really trying to drive home here. Um, and he had received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised so that he would become the father of all who believe but have never been circumcised, that they could have righteousness credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised who are not only circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham, uh, that our father Abraham possessed when he was still uncircumcised. Okay, so if you have the same faith as Abraham did before he was circumcised, that is what Christ is doing. That is what the the whole point of Paul's argument here is that this is before anything could possibly be done by us. While, remember, while we were ungodly, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were ungodly, we were declared to be righteous. We are ungodly, and yet we are declared to be righteous. Does that sink in at all when it comes to this doctrine of justification? You are declared righteous. You are an ungodly, reprobate person. You've never given your life to Christ. You've never done anything, anything remotely Christian in that way. God declares you righteous, and you are. Okay, the outcome of that we we see, and that's the sanctification aspect of it. I mean, 
you know, we can get into that. That's, that's, that's another, another topic, another, another issue. But the point here in justification is that this declaration is going on for the promise of Abraham to his descendants, that he would inherit the world. It was not fulfilled through the law, but came through the righteousness that comes by faith. And faith is the faith of Christ. For if they became heirs by the law, faith is empty and the promise is nullified. For the law brings wrath, because there is no law, there is no transgression either. For this reason, it is by faith so that it may be by grace, with the result that the promise uh, may be certain to all descendants, not only those who are under the law, but those who also have uh, the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Okay? Now, this starts to get to be a, a, a big one here in this, this next verse. I believe it is. Yeah, I have, I have this one kind of all marked up here. Chapter 4 of the book of Romans, all right, verse 17 is a big deal verse right here. Says, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He is our father in the presence of God whom he believed. The God who makes the dead alive. And what else does he do? summons the things that do not yet exist as though they already do. You are ungodly. He declares you righteous. He summons the things that do not yet exist as though they already do. Being righteous means you've done everything perfectly. Okay, if you've ever seen Finding Nemo and you see the turtles in, in that thing, they're like, righteous, righteous, you know, when, um, uh, you know, Marlin was bouncing through all the jellyfish and, and doing that. And they were like, that was righteous. It's as though they're actually using the word correctly. It's, a, it's as though he did everything perfectly and you couldn't do better on that. Surfing, hanging 10, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the level of perfection. It was done perfectly. You are declared righteous. You are ungodly. You are declared righteous. Okay, and by you being declared righteous, and Abraham believed and was declared righteous, this was all done because, um, you know, he believed on the one who declares the ungodly righteous. He was declared righteous. I'm going to say that over and over again, and then I'm going to jump to 17 that says that God, that he believed on God, not only the one who declares those righteous who makes the dead yet alive and summons the things that do not yet exist as though they already do. Verse 18, against hope, Abraham believed in hope with the result that he became the father of nations. Abraham had no hope that had to be given to him. Fides qua creditor, fides qua creditor, that understanding. But again, here we are, you know, in verse four, you know, um, or chapter four, verse 17, where he's saying, he's saying, he's, he's declaring things to exist that don't even exist yet. And he's saying that it is. That's a huge, huge deal. And let's, let's continue on. Let's go past, um, verse 18 here. Um, Without verse 19, without being weak in faith, he considered his own body dead because he was 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver in unbelief about the promise of God, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. He was fully convinced that what God had promised was also able to do. So indeed, it was credited to Abraham as righteousness. 
he then possessed righteousness and he was then exercising the faith, the fides quae creditor, the faith by which he was confessing and acting and believing in. This is the sanctification aspect of it. And that shows that the justification has taken place because we have this evidence of a sanctification, a, an outer working aspect of it. Um, but the statement, it was credited to him, was not written only for Abraham's sake, but also for our sake, to whom it will be credited. Those who believe in the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who believe in what? What do we believe? We believe in the one who declares the ungodly righteous. We believe in the one who um, who, who summons the things that do not yet exist as though they already do. That's who we believe in. Okay, the one who does the work outside of us. 25, verse 425 in Romans, he was given over because of our transgressions and was raised for the sake of our justification. We are saved by grace for Christ's sake through his faithfulness. You don't have to believe this in order for it to be applied to you. The doctrine of justification, this is the way God has always done it. He has always, throughout all time, he has declared people righteous and that's how they've been saved. Okay. It's not by, you know, the works of the law. It's not by, you know, different time periods. There were different requirements. No, it's always been this way. That's what Paul is trying to show. It's always been this way and it will always be this way. God does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He declares the ungodly righteous and he summons things into existence as though they were really there, as though they were true, as though they already do exist, as though they were already there. And he declares you righteous. And you are. Peter gets a, a big smackdown in, uh, in, in Galatians. Okay, um, it, it, Paul rebukes Peter. Okay, in chapter 2, verse 11, starting in verse 11, because he came and he would not eat with the the Gentiles when the Jews arrived. Okay, and Paul yells at him for that because, you know, are you trying to force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You're actually denying the doctrine of justification. Okay, and he basically was a bigot. Okay, he, you know, held on to this bigotry, and this was 14 years later, um, you know, from, from the time that he was at um, uh, the, um, he was up on the Tanner's house, and, you know, he was, he was called to, um, I can't remember the guy's name, but he was called to, you know, basically a Gentile who were God-fearers to deliver them the gospel, and the angel didn't deliver them the gospel. The angel knew it and just didn't do it for a, a reason that I have, you know, I could talk about later on, um, but... Peter goes to them and says, you know, it's unlawful for me to even be here. I, should, I shouldn't even be here with you people, but God told me to come. And, you know, it's after he saw the vision of the unclean animals and he said, take, kill and eat and, you know, that sort of thing. But Peter was a bigot. You know, he, he was going in, it would be like me going into, you know, somebody's house, like a black person's house. And I'm a white person, if you couldn't, if you don't know, and if you can't tell, um, going to a black person's house saying, you know what? I don't even like you people. I shouldn't even be here. I just, you know, it's, it's wrong. I find it to be societally wrong for me to even associate with you people, but God wants me to come and tell you this gospel. Okay. So I'm going to do that and leave. And then for 14 years, I hold that attitude and I still do. And that's where Peter's at in Galatians. So the question is, is Peter saved? He's 
he doesn't know the doctrine of justification. He can't articulate the doctrine of justification. He practically denies it by categorizing people in this way in his head and being a bigot. By all accounts, you would say Peter's not saved. Okay? If you're looking at it in that perspective. And Paul is saying, you know, um, that no, Jews and Gentiles are justified by faith in the exact same way. It's the same way it happened with Abraham before he was circumcised, before he would be considered officially a Jew, okay? Because to become a Jew at that time, there were three things that you had to do. Number one, you had to be baptized. Number two, you had to be circumcised. And number three, you had to um, uh, give an offering, okay? Uh, do a, a, a sacrifice to God. All right, those were the three things. And if you didn't do those, if you weren't circumcised, you couldn't even be considered a Jew, which meant you couldn't even be considered to be saved. Any On the path to salvation at all, that you would know you're outside the camp. And Paul's making that argument that Abraham was declared righteous before he was circumcised, just like these Gentiles. Okay, so you don't have any right to, to say this stuff. Just because you deny this doctrine of justification, it's like denying gravity. Gravity exists. Okay, it doesn't matter whether you believe in it or not. That's not what gives it its power. It's God is the one who is doing it. Okay, God is the justifier. So, what this is saying here with this whole separation is that if you hold to this doctrine of justification, if you hold to the doctrine of justification, not this one, there's there's progressive justification along with progressive sanctification. That's a different understanding, but this is the way that God's done it. And if you are somebody, if you are a reformed person or you are a Protestant or whatever you consider yourself to be um, outside of a, a denomination that specifically denies this doctrine of justification, you do not have the liberty to say those who deny it are not saved. You do not have that liberty. To make that assumption is to deny this doctrine at face value, to deny it. You don't even believe it yourself. To say that people have to believe in Christ alone in order to be saved denies this doctrine. I'm not saying that it's not, you know... Um, uh, Christ alone, okay? Sola Christus. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that you don't have to believe in that doctrine in order for that to be true and for, in order for that to prove it. You don't have to articulate something a certain way and if you don't articulate it because what you've then done is saying, I am justified by, um, not, not just by God declaring me and not by the work of Christ. I am justified by my articulation of a doctrine or my adherence to a doctrine or my rejection to a doctrine. You put it all in yourself and you've put it outside of God. The doctrine of justification is only found in God, period. And if you do that, if you say Roman Catholics aren't saved because they deny this doctrine, you deny the doctrine. Okay, they're just honest about it. They're honest about it and saying we don't agree with it. You are dishonest by giving it lip service and then denying it. You're actually denying the gospel, and through through an ignorant statement and if you put it and if you put it on yourself that you have to believe the gospel in order to be saved well now you've actually taken it out you've you've denied the doctrine of justification again you believe in the gospel because of the doctrine of justification you don't believe in justification because of the gospel you have it backwards justification is from god and it comes first Okay, you can deny it, you can disagree with it, and you can push it aside. But what you can't do is hold to the doctrine of justification and say, those who disagree with it or those who disagree with me, that this is the way Christ's atonement applies to them. 
that they are not saved because now you've just come up with a, a construct. You've come up with a model. You've come up with another law that Christ would have to come and die for again to get rid of in order for you to understand this, in order for you to believe this. And Paul says that's not going to happen because it's already done. You're just believing wrong. You've set up another structure and say, this is the structure that you have to adhere to in order to be saved. Paul in Galatians says that's wrong. Don't do that. You cannot say anyone who confesses Christ is Lord, even if they don't understand the application of the atonement, even if they disagree with your articulation and my articulation, even if they disagree with the scriptural articulation here, they don't see it. They disagree with it. They, they, they don't believe it. They think it's too good to be true. Anything like that or whatever doesn't change the fact that this is the way God has always done it. Okay. This doctrine of justification did not come about until the 16th century, this articulation of it. And if this articulation of it that we understand didn't come about until then, what do you do with all the people from, from from then until that point, and from then until now. Do you say that nobody was saved at all? Well, that's not what Paul says. Paul says even go, go as far back to Abraham. Just to give an illustration, go back to Abraham. Abraham was declared, which means you can take it all the way back to Adam. This is all of human history. The Bible is the generation, degeneration, and regeneration of mankind. It is monogistic. It is what God has done. This is the doctrine of justification. It simply tells us what God says about us. And that is my study on justification here for you, your, your Bible study. Um, I hope that you've uh, appreciated this series. I hope that um, you could pick up a little bit more in, in this. Now, uh, you know, I probably should say this, that in my homiletics class, I always got points deducted for sounding, you know, authoritative and maybe condescending and um, uh, spending too much time in history and that sort of thing. And I do apologize for all of that. I just, I get excited, I get passionate and I just, I, I, my voice starts getting, you know, very forceful and, you know, I, I do apologize for that. Um, you know, if you, if you are to, you know, give a, you have a study, please keep that in mind. People don't appreciate that. And I just, I'm sorry, I just get going, I get real excited and I, I just keep, you know, pushing and pushing and pushing. So, um, I'd like to thank you for listening to Theology Pit. Um, please, you know, share this with your friends. Please, uh, you know, like us on Facebook. Um, give me a rating on, um, iTunes, you know, uh, leave a comment, you know, comment on this. I'll try and put these notes and these scripture verses in the um, uh, in in the show notes and in the uh, in the blog and you, that you can find at samsonstick.com. Uh, it'll come up also on um, the Theology Pit uh, Facebook page. You can email me samson at samsonstick.com. And now it is definitely time to close down the pit. Thank you. Mm-hmm.